Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Well, hello there. Welcome to this week's edition of the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast and what an edition it's going to be. There's heaps going on all around the world from Western Sydney to Qatar to Monza. We'll be chatting supercars, S5000, Formula One. We've got some great WRC content coming your way and to help me dissect it all is a teammate that I'd wave on past with my indicator any day of the week, Stefan Bartholomeus. How are you? You made your uh, feelings on teamwork pretty clear last week, uh, Andrew, with that Triple Eight stuff. So uh, I've been. But I would let you through. That's that's my point. I would always let you through. That's uh, that's a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you finally? So last week you said that you were just engrossed in this festival of of motor racing at Sydney Motorsport Park. Are you finally Sydney Motorsport Parked out? Well, somehow they've left us all wanting more, right? Like we, we didn't get a race on Sunday well, that's true. without the final piece in the thousand-piece jigsaw that we were making for the last month. <laughs> that's that is very true. That's uh, that is mighty sad that we didn't um, didn't get that that last little piece. Well, look, we didn't get a race, but we did get a champion. So I think we should start there. We have our twenty twenty one Supercars champion uh, Shane Van Gisbergen. Sure, he would have loved to have sealed it by uh, dominating in the wet and you would have put some pretty smart money on him doing that, had that race gone ahead. But look, completely dominant season, you know, broken collarbone, whatever, anything, anyone chucked at him, he just took it all on this year. Amazing season, you know, remarkable performance, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if there is such a thing, I feel like he dominated in an entertaining way because he didn't just dominate based on quality speed and then go and win half the races from pole. If you look at the pole count, I mean, he's got six so far and Anton's got 11. Um, even Shane versus Jamie, it's 16-14 in the, in the head-to-head quality. They were pretty hard to split on that, but the, he was super consistent in qualifying Shane this year, which is something that he's had a few peaks and troughs in the past, so he did a really good job. I mean, he has the best quality average in the field at the moment with one round to go. And um, pretty much in the races, you can only really pinpoint that um, that spin that he had at turn one in the dark at SMP3 as his, his big race mistake of the year. Other than that, he's very consistent and some moments of, of sheer brilliance like that Sandown win from 17th on the grid um, after he'd broken his collarbone and, and damaged a few ribs. That was just an amazing story and really set up his year as did those winning the first six. I mean, that's that's incredible, right? And then we saw an- another great performance on, on Saturday, um, which is almost easy to forget because everyone's talking about what happened on Sunday. But um, the way he stormed through there at the end um, on Saturday night to win that race, there was kind of two reasons for it, right? One, that he'd been able to um, keep the life in his super softs better than, say, Jamie did. Um, which gave him the pace at the end and also his his ability in, in those slippery wet conditions is just second to none. So that was a that was a two for one deal on brilliance right there. Yeah, look, he does seem to just have that incredible ability to both look after the tires and go remarkably fast. Like he just has that feel for the car. I guess it comes back to car control and how you drive the car so that it does look after the tires. You know, he really was um, in a league of his own this year. He sort of touched on it uh, in the press conference afterwards talking about the fact that, you know, there was no Scotty McLaughlin there, um, Jamie Winkup perhaps a little distracted um, with other stuff. Um, let, let's have a listen to what he had to say. There's been three guys sort of the last 
few years and our level's just gone crazy. Like I've had to lift to Scotty, obviously lift to Jamie and then we've all pushed each other and um, one of them's gone and then the other's got probably a lot of outside factors that influence them. Maybe it didn't, but um, i just got to keep focused and stay above that level and not drop to everyone else, you know. It's, um, it's been pretty awesome this championship the last few years trying to catch someone and perform to your peak and keep learning. And I think this year, you know, I kept, I kept getting better and I just got to, got to keep focused and keep improving. Stefan, I sort of found it interesting the way he talked about not wanting to drop back to everyone else. Like he kind of referenced the fact that, you know, there's been the big three for the last year and this year he was kind of on his own because Jamie wasn't quite there. Is that a little unfair to the likes of Cam Waters and Chaz Mostert, do you think, to, to, to say something like that? Oh, to be honest, I don't think it is because, I mean, the challenge for, for Shane is to operate at that peak level every weekend. And to be honest, those those guys, Cam and Chaz and whoever else, I mean, they are occasional challenges, but they haven't contended for a title. They haven't been there every week, so you can't sort of say they're Raising the bar, I mean, I don't think that's a slight on them, though, because you need the equipment to be consistently good in order to, to be yeah. at that level. When you're, when you're battling the car, you're, you're struggling, you're in and out of setup windows, one week you're fast, the next week you're not. I don't think, even just executing quality, when you don't know exactly what you've got under you week to week, I don't think they can sort of yeah, be at that extremely high level that Shane has been at this year. So, yeah, I don't think it's a, it's a sledge on them. Um, he, I, th- I thought he spoke well again, like how he acknowledged the fact, yeah, Scotty wasn't here, but I would have loved her if he was. So, yeah, I, I don't think that was yep. a particular – it wasn't one of his famous sledges, put it that way. It's funny that, you know, you talk about the fact that um, knowing what you have under uh, under you in qualifying, and it seemed like that was kind of a journey that Anton Di Pasquale was on during the Sydney Motorsport Park swing because, you know, even the first week he talked about the fact that, oh, I've sort of worked out that I can just tip the thing to turn one on the first lap in quality and it's going to stick. You know, he's he's learning to actually have that consistency because it's probably not something that he's necessarily had um, before. So, yeah, I, I sort of agree. I think it's – I mean, you can't argue the fact that he was on a different level to everyone else, you know. There was no one in the same postcode um, this year to Shane. Uh, absolutely brilliant season. Um I mean, yeah, it would have probably been nice if he had sealed it on the Saturday night, mm. you know, after that drive or if something sort of had happened uh, on the Sunday. Let's let's talk about the rain. Uh, we can dance around, dance around as much as we like, but I just think there's been so many opinions out there about it, but I just think they should have just gone racing. I just I don't like this this growing trend of not having any risk associated with the weather when it comes to motorsport, not just in supercars. And in fact, supercars has been, you know, fairly resilient to weather. If you look at kind of um, even qualifying on the weekend, I don't think Formula One cars would have been out in that sort of weather. But I understand that there's safety implications and I certainly would never want anyone to be at risk. I understand that teams don't want to tear up cars because of all the, you know, the, the ramifications of being on the road and Bathurst being so close and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, they've got wet weather tyres. Just put them on and drive. It's not NASCAR. You can drive to the conditions. I really just feel like I feel like they should have just gone racing. And I say that not having to make the decision or live with the consequences and all that sort of stuff. So it's really – I know it's very easy to say and it's very much a – you know, I was sitting on the couch. It's very much a couch racer point of view. But I just kind of feel like that, you know, you don't have to drive flat out. You don't have to say, well, we can't go out there because we're all going to go flying off at turn one. Well, you don't have to. You could just drive a little bit slower. We could drive to the conditions and sort of see who who comes home who, who comes home first. Stefan, what's um what's your take on the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, obviously we we sit there. We want to see a race. That's what we've tuned in for. Um, I understand, like as we all do, if it's a pure safety call for the drivers, like. There was a lot of standing water you could even see from from the television, um, and we saw in the Super Two race the visibility was pretty bad. Once they in the little periods they did get racing, and then they had a couple of incidents there that affected a tire barrier, which meant that was a non-race as well. So all of that you can kind of you can kind of give them the benefit of the doubt, but there was a lot of talk about the saving the cars for Bathurst and not wanting wanting any accidents two weeks out from the great race. And yeah, it's an unusual situation that the Queensland teams couldn't go back home. 
And clearly, yeah, a damaged car would have been bad news for them. But I don't think that really, really washes when there's punters that have sat there at SMP that have paid their money to see a race and even anyone who tuned in on TV and dedicated their afternoon to, to seeing the show for them to not put it on and at least in part for that to be driving the decision that, um, yeah, they didn't want to fix any bent cars before Bathurst really wasn't good enough. And it just it just had a feeling that everyone was over it and they didn't go, want to go racing. Like you sort of you, – you're yeah. there wanting to see them making the effort of sending the safety car out with, with Bairdo in it to assess the conditions and all of that. But all we got was seeing sort of team owners standing around and then ultimately – the the race was uh, killed off, and you, you kind of also want to see uh, Sean Seymour, Supercars CEO, or race director Tim Schenken kind of front the camera and sort of be the face of it and say exactly why. It sort of just had a little, um, yeah, a real nothing sort of feel to the end of it. And probably the other thing that doesn't pass the the old pub test is the fact that then there's drivers talking about it's a shame we don't have a proper wet tire which as a as a casual viewer you'd be just like what i don't know i don't know no one loves yeah. talking about tires more than you and you've spoken to dunlop <laughs> kevy fitzsimmons about this why why is this something that's um gets brought up every time there's a lot of rain yeah so basically what what the wet tire is the supercar's wet tire is is as kevy put it is an aggressive intermediate. So it's built to for any wet weather conditions, basically, except really heavy rain, which is kind of what we had on the weekend. So the reason they do that is because you could have a full wet and intermediate and then a slick like you do in Formula One, but then you just need more tyres. And those really soft compound wet tyres don't last forever. So we don't actually – we have fairly mild weather here in Australia. So Kevy sort of ran through the reasons why – they don't have that tire. It would be you could do it. You could make a super soft wet tire. Absolutely no issue with that. But it's just going to cost a lot of money. So it's never going to happen because we don't have these conditions that often. So he kind of said, look, it probably was pushing the limits. Those conditions were probably going to push the limits of that tire um, a fair bit. The other point he made, which is interesting, is that the teams don't necessarily help themselves with the setup. So you know they were getting tires back that have been used in the wet where he said you could tell that the outside shoulder hadn't been touching the road. So teams are still screwing a heap of camber into the car just in case it dries up during the race and then they've got a half-decent setup on. So, you know, maybe if teams are running more well, less aggressive setups, that might make a difference and the tyre could kind of do the job a little better. But effectively, you know, the, the conditions probably were going to push the tyre a little bit too hard. But I sort of agree with you. They didn't even kind of try to get to that point you know they didn't they didn't send the cars back out behind the safety car or even send the safety car out to have a look they kind of all went oh there's too much standing water and that barrier um, repair from the super two race that kind of played into it as well because that meant there was like an hour and a half with no cars on track at all funnily enough they had actually talked earlier in the day about shifting the race um forward because we all knew it was going to rain they were talking about rain from last weekend you know, talking about the fact that oh, we're probably not going to do a lot of dry running on the following weekend. So everyone knew it was coming. They talked about shifting the race. They didn't for whatever reason. I would imagine it would be something to do with television because you sort of promote, you know, it's hard to probably make a decision quite that late. It was probably a decision that needed to be made on, say, the Saturday so you could actually publicise that there's going to be a change to the timetable. Stephen, does there need to be a little bit more agility in the calendar and in the schedule with that because we all knew it like it was actually a fairly predictable outcome and even drivers were saying from Friday well let's see if we actually do any racing or not yeah it was almost a running joke in the in the TV coverage about predicting weather and that it was going to tip down on Sunday and yet it, it feels like it got to Sunday morning before there was much thought into uh, whether the race should be brought forward it's it's as you sort of suggested. It's it's easy to try to poke holes in it in hindsight, and those things are really hard to shift around with TV. Um, pro- probably the other area they fell down was okay. Channel Seven probably wanted to go off air as soon as there was no race, um, but for the Fox coverage to just end so abruptly um, when we still had this great story to tell about about Shane securing the championship, um, he. he briefly got thrust with the sort of Sydney Cup in front of his nose and, and that was it. It was – I think that added, like for me at least, that added a lot to the the feeling of disappointment that we didn't get a show because 
Um, the fact that the fact that he wrapped it up, I think, was great because it gets so lost in the Bathurst um, victory hype. Like, yeah. especially you know, if yeah. if he didn't happen to win Bathurst, but you secure the championship, you sort of really in the background. And this was the opportunity to uh, really shine a light on what an amazing season he, he had. But they uh, they cut it off. We didn't see like we only learned via Twitter that he'd done some like victory uh, bloody. Uh, Burnouts or donuts, whatever you call them, in the wet. Um, yeah, it would have been cool to see that, um, but instead they, they just cut to a replay of, of the Saturday race, which was bizarre. I couldn't believe it. I honestly, I was sitting there with my recorder ready to grab some sweet Van Gisbergen reaction because I thought, yeah, surely they're going to drag him up here and and talk about you know this amazing season he's had and reflect on the fact there's no racing going on and all that sort of stuff. And then bang, it was done. It was just it was unbelievable. And then there's a replay of. Yesterday's race, like it wasn't like there was on, on Fox, there was an, something else urgent. They weren't diving to get into, you know, the race, the Formula One race or something like that. It was just, it just, I, I really couldn't believe. Like if the sport doesn't look like it cares about its new champion, how does it expect anybody to care about its new champion? Yeah, it's, it's always an awkward one when it gets wrapped up early because we've seen, we've certainly seen with Jamie in the past, um, going back a few years that he was really reluctant to, to talk about having won it just in case he got a points penalty or whatever. But um, Shane yeah. was actually really yeah. welcoming of it. Like he was clearly um, clearly stoked. Um, and it felt like one yeah. of those moments where he was going to be really good in, in an interview as he later showed in the in the presser. But, um, yeah, I think he copped one question about the Sydney Cup on the broadcast and that was that. Yeah, it was um, it was it was weird. I really didn't get that at all. I guess the donuts thing is kind of, you know, it would have been kind of – difficult to explain on the telecast. Yeah, we can't race. It's too dangerous, but we're going to let this bloke go and do 360s down the front straight, you know, which, again, kind of raises questions about the whole philosophy of, of, of racing in the rain. If that is suddenly okay, um, a guy purposely losing control, like he he could, he seemed to be controlling that car reasonably well while going sideways. So anyway, that's all we could bang on about should we or shouldn't we race in the rain forever. Let's have a bit of a chat about uh, Matt Payne, the young Kiwi. Um, he's the guy that Kelly Grove Racing want to get into their car next season. He needs a super license exemption to do that because he um, hasn't got the experience. Um, in, I mean, this is actually his first year of car racing in general. He's done all right, like podium finisher at the New Zealand Grand Prix. Uh, he's a race winner in Carrera Cup. Clearly very quick. You know, he was uh, fastest in the Super 2 test, fastest in Super 2 practice, faster in the fastest in the additional drivers session at Sydney Motorsport Park. Very, very quick. But it kind of went all downhill once the races started. He made a couple of what you just have to call rookie errors, stalling on the front row of the grid in the first Super 2 race. He went off the road in the wet in the second Super 2 at tough conditions, but, you know, that's, that's what happens when you don't have a lot of experience in a car. It's very difficult to feel the grip in those conditions. Stefan, did he do his super license cause a bit of harm with these mistakes on the weekend, do you think? Yeah, it was it was almost a, like a caricature of what his weekend could have been. I mean, he what was that old James Hunt phrase? The rooster to feather duster? Um, to to yes. show the speed that he did <laughs> and put it on the front row for his first Super 2 race, like that's an incredible story. And it's so exciting to think um, what he's going to bring to the series in, in future. Like clearly he's an amazing yeah. talent that's uh, – bit of a rough diamond at the moment because he just doesn't have the experience. Um, so it almost feels unfair um, in a way that he's sort of been put in this position where there's just so much attention and pressure on him. Like, oh, if he makes a mistake, um, any chance of his exemption is going to go up in smoke. So, yeah, I, I thought my, my feeling from speaking to people before the weekend was that he's, he's up against it to get an exemption because he's, um, yeah, they sort of, they're in this no man no man's land of having this system, but then not enforcing it, and sometimes and sometimes not. Yeah. And yeah, it just feels like they need to either either stick with it or abandon the whole shooting match. Yeah, I think so. Like, I, I don't actually like the super license um, system that much. I have a theory that it's it was conceived with vested interest in mind. If you look at the weighting of certain categories, particularly when it first came out, uh, Formula Four perhaps. Um, but, you know, it exists now, you know, and if Motorsport Australia and Supercars grant an exemption to someone, like he's clearly lightning quick, like you say, the guy has a massive future in the sport. He is going to be 
a great supercars driver, but he needs work. He needs work to kind of get to the point where he can safely race these cars. Probably being quick actually doesn't help because you go, well, this guy, you know, if he's having trouble launching the cars, he's not going to be coming off the back rail of the grid because he goes pretty good. Um, so, you know, like I, I sort of agree that you sort of, you know, if you don't use the super license system in this exact situation to make sure he is as prepared as possible to be a supercars driver, then what's what's the point of having it? And doesn't this that doesn't sort of what we saw on the weekend sum up what Super Two is for? Like it's to go and get experience in these cars, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm 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 genuinely torn on the whole super license thing um, and whether it should be hard and fast because you sort of look at last year and. Like Nathan Hearn was obviously knocked back from a dispensation to do um, to do Bathurst, and I think dispensation is the word we should be using. I don't know why exemption's been on my brain, but uh, must have must have been something else. Dispensation. <laughs> so he was knocked back, but Brock Feeney got it. But then you're like, well, Brock was front runner in Super Two and had won Super Three, so it kind of didn't seem that unjust. And then you can look at well, full time's kind of different to debuting as a one-off in, in the biggest race of the year as a co-driver in the 1000s. So once once it becomes grey, you can sort of argue around anything. But, yeah, it's uh, certainly the what happened on the weekend I don't feel like would have done Matt any, any favours. No, I think like without those mistakes, if he just goes and runs at the front all weekend, then there's a really strong argument based on, like you say, the Feeney examples and all that to go, yeah, no, we, we, we can probably get away with giving this kid a license, but I think with those mistakes, everyone else looking for a license is going to go, well, hang on a second. You know, that's if that's okay, then why is my situation not okay? I guess an alternative plan we could see, you know, if you sort of put your what makes sense hat on, um, someone like Zane Goddard, you know, he's, he's out of a drive for next season as it stands. He could end up as... Um, as being the perfect sort of single-year signing um, for that number seven car. And then you see how he stacks up against David Reynolds. They uh, they have a year together, you know, and at the end, Dave's got one more year on his contract, and then at the end of the season, you go, well, we're bringing in Matt Payne at the end of the 2022 season, and then we'll choose out of these two other guys. Does that sort of make some sort of sense to you as well, Stefan? Yeah, I mean, when you look at who's out there, Zane's probably the number one draft pick in terms of he's shown – He's shown some ability and has has a bit of experience. Um, it's just it's not just a weird situation for Matt now. It is for the team as well, um, and it's a shame they yeah. couldn't have made something work with Andre because he's actually sort of the perfect solution in terms of other than the fact that Dave missed a couple of rounds. Like they've been quite evenly matched, certainly on on quality speed. Mm. Um, yeah, and now yeah. they've got this sort of weird stopgap year if if Matt doesn't get the dispensation. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of an unusual one for everybody involved. It was interesting that they had um, they were going to take part Kelly Grove Racing in the in the test day that took place at City Motorsport Park on the Tuesday between SMP three and four, but then they bailed out of that, which gives them one to use at the end of the year. So I don't know. We haven't seen for a while one of those old school like driver shootouts. Where you know, like someone like Gary Rogers mm. would get like four drivers and be like, "Yep, whoever's fastest is going to get the uh, get the drive." They they were great things for the media. I, I kind of want to see one of those. That would be good. That's a great idea. That is a fantastic idea. Um, there was some track action even before uh, things kicked off at Sydney Motorsport Park last week. The debut for the Camaro, Stefan. This was your breaking news story, my friend. A bit of fantastic news hounding uh, from you there to. Uh, to crack open the case of the secret Camaro test, uh, what do you know about it? Well, yeah, I mean, as, as you know, it's not my role to be uh, breaking uh, news. I try to leave that to you these days, but oh, you, sometimes you end up you just do it for fun. You just you like you, you like to come in and just make the point that you still can do it. If you exactly, need to. if, if you it. happen to get the ball while you're in the goal square, you may as well snap one through, right? So, yeah, it was obviously a big day for supercars, like to have the Camaro on track. When you think about, um, you know the Commodore has been the General Motors product since 1980 for Australian touring car racing. So this is like a big, big step in towards the future. And to have the Camaro running on track alongside the Mustang, um, Brock Feeney was was driving the Camaro, and obviously it's a it's a new motor which they've had to do a lot of work um, on that. And I'm sure there's more to go, uh, but they just needed to give this thing a run on track before it goes up to Bathurst for the for the launch. Um, Probably the most the most interesting part was the 
was the timing of the test and how that had sort of uh, played out publicly. Yeah, I mean, they, they said, so it was meant to be last Tuesday. That sort of came out on the broadcast for the SMP3 weekend. Supercars said that it was going to be delayed by a week. You made the point last week on the pod that, you know, it seemed like that was maybe a little convenient to try and take the public eye off when it was actually going to be that, prefer people didn't know and try and, you know, clamber up trees and catch a glimpse of it in Ipswich. They, they, the, the statement, and it was a public statement that Supercars published and sent out to the media, it said that the test was going to be d- delayed by a week and it was delayed by one day. Was it ever true that it was going to be delayed by a week? And if it wasn't true, Stefan, is it okay for Supercars to lie to the public like that? There was, yeah, I mean, there was some grain in terms of whether the car was going to be ready in time and Supercars said to me that there was multiple dates booked and there was a chance it could have been any one of a number of them but yeah it's it's not it's not right to uh deceive the public if that was the intention and um yeah like i I fully i understand the sensitivity of it especially when you're dealing with a new vehicle and um general motors in the u.s like if it's their mandate to make sure this thing doesn't get out um before the launch and you haven't got that old luxury of um, the the proving grounds that Ford and Holden used to have here to be able to do these things in secret. Um, but yeah, their mistake from the supercars' point of view was probably committing to a to an exact timeline and saying that it was um, going to be the following week, if that wasn't actually the intention. Because um, yeah, there was just probably no need to to actually commit hard on saying it was the following week. Yeah, I think you just leave it open-ended. You just say we've had to delay the test and, yeah, it just felt like uh, it, yeah, it, it, it felt very purposeful to sort of uh, say it's going to be the next week and then it wasn't. I don't feel like it was ever going to be the next and week. And before we leave the Camaro, we should, I reckon we, we need to find a way weekly to weave in the, the paddle shift discussion, right? So the Camaro mm, ran sure. with the paddles, but the Mustang this time ran with the stick, but still um, the assisted shift. Um, and I don't know. I don't know about you, but well, I know you've been on this the whole time. But seeing the, especially seeing that some of that stuff um, at Sydney Motorsport Park last weekend with the drivers manipulating the cars in those wet conditions, just even if we end up with a stick with the assisted shift, it's still it's still not the right outcome, is it? We need we need no. the current system to carry over as is, and I, I hope that the the new owners of supercars can see that. Yep. The teams would like to save a little bit of money on engine bills and, and drive lines and things like that, but there's there's some money that needs to be spent as part of the cost of doing business, and I, I really feel that um, that goes into that category. Hundred percent, hundred percent, Stefan. I agree with you. I, that's that's great. Bring back. I, I still think anything but a H pattern is cheating. Hundred percent cheating. But I would I would settle on kind of. Uh, what we've got at the moment, if that's if that's the best we can do. Let's talk some Formula One now, and the title fight just keeps getting better and better. It's uh, pretty close with a couple of rounds to go now. It could actually, I think, if a good weekend for Lewis next time out in Saudi Arabia, and he could be pretty much level on points uh, with Max. Is he sort of becoming the four man on the run home here, do you reckon, Stefan? Yeah, it's amazing the way the uh, momentum or performance has swung um, towards the Mercedes. Um, Toto Wolff was saying after uh, Qatar that, um, you know, that DSQ for Lewis uh, in qualifying in Brazil awoke the lion, I think was his uh, terminology, Mm. but it probably uh, takes the focus away a little bit from uh, the amount of development and work that's uh, going into that Mercedes because, my God, (laughs) is it fast at the moment. And it's it's sort of hard to yep. know like how much more they had in in hand, but um, the way those top two drove away from the whole field uh, on the weekend was also extraordinary. I mean, like I think Lewis was a minute ahead of third place at the end and it lapped like all the way up to about P nine. So um, yeah, it's crazy the way they've just uh, lit the touch paper on that and it's uh, it's flying. And you, you'd probably feel I feel like Lewis is probably the the favourite at this point. Yeah, it's funny how, like, you know, we saw Max get a five-grid spot penalty uh, in this race. We saw Lewis cop a whole bunch of penalties last race. They just don't seem to matter anymore for those guys. Like, they're so much quicker than everyone else. It's like, okay, well, this means I might come second instead of first, but it's not going to mean I'm going to be buried back in the field and not make any progress because 
they make pretty light work of uh, of getting through. Let's have a chat about that penalty for Max. He copped five grid spots for ignoring yellow flags um, in qualifying, but there's a few factors at play. So he kind of um, the warning system. They usually have a warning system, an audible warning system in their ear and on their da- on their steering wheel, which says that there's double wave yellow flags. Um, he could see the car, all those sorts of things. He obviously did, just didn't see the the, the flag point. Um, Stefan, what's your take on this? It's a tricky one. And even the stewards report said they had some sympathy for Max, but I guess ultimately when a bloke blazes past double wave yellow flags at speed, you have to take some sort of action. Yeah, I think you've summed it up right there. Like there's there's often mitigating circumstances and nuance to each situation, but I think whenever you've blazed past some double yellows and and even if you think you can see exactly what's caused it, like the, the Gasly car parked over there, you can never be 100% sure that there's not something else going on that you, you haven't spotted. So I think um, that was – it needed to be penalised. Um, you've, you've got to protect the, the marshals in particular in all circumstances, I would suggest, on and off the track. Oh, here we go. Well, look – Christian Horn had gotten a bit of strife because uh, he basically, well, he went on TV and basically said that the marshal had gone a bit rogue by hanging the extra yellow flag and that the FIA needs to get its marshals under control. It was pre-race on Sunday night. It was, it was, you know, it was typically sort of measured Christian's measured way of speaking, but it was a fairly decent uh, sort of tear up. He was, um, he was delivering. He got in a bit of strife for that after the race. He had to apologise to the marshal and make sort of a public apology. Where do you sit on this? Never criticise the umpires debate, Stefan. We see it not just it's not just a motor racing thing. It's probably even a bigger thing in 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 you know football codes and that sort of stuff where. Uh, coaches are getting a lot of strife if they sort of attack the umpires and stuff. I mean, umpires make mistakes. Is it that unfair to really point them out sometimes? I think particularly as media, we love for um, the people in the sport to, to speak their minds. So there's a danger of falling down the, the hypocrisy hole when you then start criticising them for doing exactly what you would sort of always want them to do. But in this particular case, like, the, the umpires aren't beyond criticism, but when it's one of the most powerful people in the sport criticising, singling out a volunteer marshal, I think probably Christian would have realised that that was the wrong way to go. I think there's that, that's a conversation that sort of needs to be had a little bit behind closed doors. You can you can be frustrated at the situation, but to, to point out the act of one volunteer individual, that, um, that can be quite damaging to them I think to to make that such a public spectacle so yeah I, I think it's different when you're talking about paid professional full-time officials to be honest I think mm. there, there needs yeah. to be rigor and scrutiny around their actions but um, if he had his time again I think he would have been a little bit more careful around how he phrased that uh, that frustration. Yeah, no, I do. I agree. I think in terms of like criticizing the FIA is one thing but criticizing the actual marshal himself was probably what got him in a bit of strife there. Um, let's chat about S5000 while we're on the talk about open wheels. Um, Stefan, I just I, – I, I feel bad saying this because, like, Richard Crail, if you're listening, please just cover your ears right now because I don't like saying bad things about something that, that a man like him is so passionate about. But why on earth is – why is this called the Tasman Series? Why is S5000 racing for the Tasman Series right now? There's no races in New Zealand. There's not one Kiwi in the field. It embodies nothing of the Tasman Series, absolutely nothing. It's great. I love S5000. It's great that that this category is racing again. It's a great addition. It was a great addition to the Sydney Motorsport Park undercard. It's going to be awesome at Bathurst as long as they do get these suspension issues under control because it could get pretty gnarly uh, if they don't. Um I just don't get this this Tasman series thing. I understand that they want to try and create this connection between, you know, create this idea that this is a modern reincarnation of old school motor racing, but this just feels like a bridge too far. And when you've got, you know, you've got Richard and the commentators doing what they are paid to do, which is, you know, try and hype up the series as much as possible, talking about these guys joining this illustrious list of Tasman, Tasman series winners. It just makes no sense. The gold star, I understand. It's the it's the pinnacle of open wheeler racing in this country now. That makes perfect sense. But I just didn't. 
I didn't get the Tasman series thing. Am I missing something, Stefan? Is this an unfair tear up that I'm leveling at S five thousand here? No, I think that that's fair. It it does have a fairly odd uh, odd sort of uh, ring to it. The old Tasman series that's held at Sydney Motorsport Park and and Bathurst. It's also it's kind of they've they've got so many brands and names and things going on. Like you're still sort of introducing S five thousand to the marketplace because obviously that went through incarnations of Formula Thunder and Super 5000 and everything else. But then, yeah, they've sort of got the Australian Drivers' Championship thing going on. They've got the Gold Star, which obviously happened earlier in the year. But there's just, yeah, every time you're referring to this class, there's something else, uh, another brand sort of added to the mix. So, yeah, I don't think they've quite hit the nail with this one. I think they probably needed a whole fire on it until there was actually a genuine series where there was rounds in Australia. And, uh, and New Zealand, but um, at the same time, probably willing to cut them a bit of slack. I mean, they've been it's – it's been such an incredible uh, story, this thing, since I think the first concept for it, like, came through in about 2015 and all the politics and mm. twists and turns it went through and then it finally sort of got up and running and then COVID just smacked it uh, for six. And I think I think that was only their, like, seventh race meeting they've had that, that category, so – yeah, it's uh, it's been a pretty painful uh, painful start, but hopefully they can uh, get some momentum going next year. Yeah, no, no, I agree, I agree, but I just think I just the Tasman series thing I just don't get. I I, I get the category, great. Let's see it keep growing, but yeah, I, I think there is a future of a Tasman series for it as well. But now is just it's, they're trying to cling on to something that just that just isn't there. <laughs> Let's chat about WRC. Sebastian Ozier has made the likes of Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher look like right chumps by winning his eighth world championship. Uh, Stefan, please don't take this as any sort of sledge on your WRC knowledge, but I decided to throw this one over to our good mate Tommy Howard. Uh, now, Tommy is the uh, WRC correspondent for Motorsport Network. He is revolutionising the WRC content on motorsport.com and autosport he's doing an amazing job if you're a rally fan you got to make sure you're reading it uh i grabbed him on the phone and asked him what it was like to be there for a um for an epic wrc title showdown in italy over the weekend yeah uh, the final round of the wrc at rally monza now uh i suppose firstly we should say that rally monza was a substitute round we should have been in japan but uh covid uh has made it uh impossible to go there so rally monza was installed again for the second year running as the final round. And uh, 17 points separated the, the t- teammates, Ogier and Evans. The, the cards were very much stacked against Evans. Uh, really, Ogier only needed to finish sixth or higher to seal an eighth world title uh, in what was his final outing as a full-time WRC driver. So it was a, a lot at stake. But credit to Evans because he really gave Ogier the, a real fight uh, right to the death there um, to, to to push him all the way, really. And, and I guess, in many ways, this was probably the best battle of the entire campaign. The top two, is, uh, what you want with a title decider is the top two going at it. And these two went at it for three days. And after 200, more than 200 kilometers going into Sunday, 0.5 seconds separate the pair. It was, it was incredible. In fact, on Saturday, the lead changed five times in six stages. Which uh, OJ even said that in his uh, in his career uh, he's never known a day where the lead has changed so often. That's how uh, how tight the fight was, and uh, he was insisting that he wasn't going to get drawn into this battle because all he needed to do really was finish to win the title. But he's a racing driver, and they always want to win, and he wanted to go out on a high. So I, Evans didn't believe him, and I have to say I don't I didn't believe his claims either. He, he wanted to go out and and do the business and uh, he did the business all right on Sunday. Uh, luckily though, he was, uh, he had a scare. He hit a concrete, uh, glanced a concrete barrier on the, on the famous Monza banking uh, with his front right. Uh, and if it had been any, any more serious, he would have uh, broken that front right wheel. And who, who knows, maybe Evans could have snared the title and that could have really changed the game. But uh, uh, luckily in the last two stages, uh, he drove sensibly. Evans had a, a little mistake. And at the end of it, 7.3 seconds separated the pair. OJ won the rally, won an eighth world title and went out and probably goes out as being the greatest rally driver of all time. 
Well, you've stolen my question there, Tommy. I wanted to ask you if he is, you know, we've had some great rally drivers, you know, obviously Sebastian Loeb is one that really sticks out, but is Ogier, is he the GOAT? I think so. I mean, you can, on paper, obviously the numbers uh, are in Loeb's favour. He's won nine world titles and and a lot more rallies compared to the 54 that uh, Ogier has won. But uh, if you look at if you look at it, Ogier has won the championships with three different manufacturers. He's won with Volkswagen, uh, with M Sport Ford, which remember was a semi works team, mm. and uh, now Toyota, two titles with them. Uh, remember, Loeb was always with Citroen, and they were the dominant force for such a long time. So to go and do it with the with the different manufacturers, I think gives him the edge over Loeb and. Uh, he will be missed, um, maybe not by the, the, the paddock, because I'm sure someone else wants to win the title, but um, I think uh, we won't see a, another driver quite like uh, Ogier for some time. Was it was it Ogier that we, we held up on the way out, out to the start of a stage at Rally Oz one year, yeah. Tommy? Was it, wasn't that him in his fiesta? He was monstering us in the mirrors when we were driving out there? That is right, yeah. He, uh, he certainly knows... Uh, knows who to follow to get his local knowledge. Exactly, exactly. So you, you sort of just referenced about, you know, um, some other drivers wanting to have a crack. You know, we had the Loeb era. We've had the Ogier era. W- what's next, Tommy? Like, who's the next sort of superstar in your eyes? I think the next superstar is Cali Robin Pera. Um, this guy's 20 years old. This year he's got his first WRC win under his belt, and he's got two now. And, in fact, the way he uh, won the second one of the Acropolis was probably one of the highlights of the entire season. He absolutely dominated. Um, and for some, for going to the Acropolis on your first time and dominating the opposition like that, yeah, this, this guy is the new flying fin. And I think, uh, I think we will see him become the youngest ever WRC world champion, which currently still is uh, the late Colin McRae back in 1995. What's he like as a sort of personality? Is he going to be good for the sport, do you think? Um, he's not going to be the, I don't think he's going to be the statesman that OJ is. Uh, one of the things that OJ, he, he might not come across as that sort of laughing, joking character, but he will stand up for the sport. And if there's something that needs to be said, he will say it. And does he, does he, he has, he has those sort of qualms with, with what that is. I think Kelly Robin Perra is quite a quiet, quiet guy, but there is actually quite, uh, quite a good sense of humor there, which is, which we saw on uh, Sunday actually, where, uh, unfortunately for him, he had to sacrifice his rally um, at Mon- Monza because uh, Toyota elected to give Evans and OJ, uh, you know, the chance to have a fair fight for the title. And with the manufacturer's title on the line, uh, they needed to have two cars reach the finish to secure that. And uh, they told Robin Perra to say, look, you drive conservative. We just need you to finish. You cannot crash because if one of our two title commanders go out, we really need you to score points so we get this manufacturer's title. So he was quite frustrated to have to give up his rally. But on the uh, on the final stage, he uh, he let loose and uh, just decided to give the crowd uh, some donuts all the way along the monster straight instead <laughs> of going for a stage time. Just because uh, he was like, oh, I just want to let the shackles loose. I want to do something fun. So uh, it's funny, funny enough, if uh, you look at the footage, uh, if you look at the pace notes of his co-driver, there is actually a giant picture of a donut, and it says "Make some donuts" in the pace notes, <laughs> which is quite quite a funny uh, little uh, story. So there's, there's, there's definitely some humour there. It might take a while for us to to get him to sort of open up a little bit, but there's definitely uh, definitely a character there that the WRC should be uh, looking forward to. That was the final event for the WRC cars before we moved to next generation cars um, next season. Was there a hint of emotion in the service park at the end of the rally because of that, Tommy? Yeah, definitely. Um, everyone is going to miss these cars. And uh, I think, well, several people have said that these are the closest things that there have been since the Group B era. And we all know that the Group B era was quite uh, quite frightening but spectacular at times and these cars are definitely up there they will they will be they will go down as probably the fastest um wrc cars that have ever been um the, the aero on these things are phenomenal and if you get the chance to obviously you won't now but if you ever got the chance to see these things in full uh full flight and action they are something quite special um so yeah the new era hybrid era obviously um, the sport's having to move to this, and it's the right it's the right decision, uh, certainly to keep the manufacturers involved. And these cars, eventually, once they do get developed, they will 
could well rival these current generation cars because you have to remember the new hybrid cars thing they need a lot of development these have had five years this current generation of five years of development so they are really quite uh, refined beasts but these new hybrid cars with the 500 horsepower boost with the full hybrid uh, boost they will be quite uh, fearsome when they uh, engage that uh, extra power on the stages go back through the whole world rally car era tommy what's your favorite give us your favorite wrc car of the era I, I I think if you for looks alone, I think you've got to go to Fiesta. I know it's had no success really this year, but that's mainly because the development on that stopped uh, at the end of 2020, uh, whereas Toyota and Hyundai continued their development this year. Uh, so that Fiesta, uh, certainly in the, perhaps the Red Bull colours, probably was the greatest looking of the uh, of the bunch, and and probably the Hyundai is probably close close second, but. Uh, but what about the yeah, whole? What about the whole WRC year? Go back. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. The whole WRC. Oh, in terms of just this current generation. No. Uh, uh, the whole WRC era. Now that is. Oh, God, that's a tough question. But I guess for me, uh, just growing up, that you can't you can't go past that Super of Colin McRae. I'm sorry that 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 Super Impreza from the from the mid '90s uh, onwards uh, to the early 2000s for me is the greatest WRC car because. Um, I, I, personally, it got me into the sport, but secondly, those iconic blue and yellow colours—you can't, you can't go past that. It was just such an iconic car. These were these were the pin-up cars of our childhood, Tommy. I I, I love the Corolla. I used to, if a Castrol Corolla, <laughs> yeah. which is very fitting on this podcast, but a Castrol Corolla was just delightful. Uh, oh, and, and actually, sticking with Castrol cars, the Hyundai Accents when they used to run in tarmac spec with yeah, the big yeah. wheels—they looked awesome. Yeah, that was uh, Alice McRae uh, and uh, Freddie Lloyds, I think, ran, ran those. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, you're right. And also, you, that Castro Salika in the early early nineties. Uh, uh, although I suppose that was that Group was quite a. special too. Sort of, although uh, was involved in some shenanigans, shall we say, uh, in '94. Tommy, thanks for uh, jumping on the line and uh, enjoy the off season. And you're off to Monte Carlo next next year, early next year. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'll be in Monty for what will be the 90th uh, anniversary Monte Carlo rally and uh, quite a, a moment for the sport as it welcomes some, some new regulations. And I think we'll see we'll see some different winners, definitely, even though we might well get uh, a very, very fascinating OJ versus Lowe battle as they, they come back for one round only. Mm, well, you enjoy Monte Carlo. We'll just go to Newcastle for our first round. You go to Monte Carlo <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll speak to you later. Thanks, Tommy. Well, we're sure you've got to come back for rally Oz at some point. Good plan. Good plan. Well, it was great to chat to our mate Tommy. Stefan, let's get into our Castrol Stars of the Week. Who you got this week? Well, it's, it might seem a little unusual uh, choice because I think he got 10th in the only race on the weekend that, that ran, but I'm going with Nick Perkat. I thought that uh, that pole up in the shootout on Sunday was just magic to watch. The whenever it's a wet shootout, they are they are generally pretty entertaining. But that was that was spellbinding watching him uh, watching him muscle that car around um, SMP, and good on him also for for saying what he thought later on about the fact that the race didn't uh, didn't run. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's. Rightly or wrongly, it's good to see someone uh, speaking their mind in that circumstance. And I think all up, when you look at um, how that car eight performed across those four SMP weekends, like there was the announcement before uh, beforehand that he was going to Walton Shores next year, and it could have easily been a real slump to the end of the year for those guys. But um, they put their heads down and uh, got some decent results. So uh, yeah, Castrol Star of the Week material. I agree. That shootout lap was spectacular to watch. Very much enjoyed it. You know, he seemed to be just going right out wide. The real go-karting lines just looking for any sort of grip, particularly where it's so worn at that surface there, just looking for looking for a bit of bite out there on the exit, and it really worked for him. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to be a bit unorthodox and go with two stars of the week uh, this week, which maybe it's against the rules, but I make the rules, so who really cares? I'm going to go with Charles Leong and Daryl O'Young. Now, they were the two big winners uh, from the Macau Grand Prix. So talk about events copping a hammering from the uh, pandemic. The Macau Grand Prix is definitely one of them. They've basically run 
the Grand Prix as a Chinese Formula 4 round for the last two years. So there's been two uh, drivers from Macau that are pretty quick in those cars, uh, Charles Leong and Andy Chang. They've just gone at it for the last two years. Um, Charles has won two Macau Grand Prix titles. There'll always be kind of a little asterisk over it because it's not the full Grand Prix, but how cool for a kid from Macau to win his home Grand Prix uh, twice, um, something that probably wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for these um, circumstances with the pandemic. So, you know, it's kind of it's kind of fun to see. And Daryl O'Young, he's from Hong Kong. Um, he'd won the first Macau GT Cup, um, came back, had a massive shunt in the qualifying race on the Saturday, slipped on some oil that was left on the run down to Lisboa. His car was, his Mercedes was all bent. They worked all night to fix it. They had it fixed 10 seconds. They got out of the, the, the pit, pit exit gate 10 seconds before it closed. He got to start in the front row because of a count back because he'd caused the red flag the day before. Uh, and he got ahead and, and and won the race. So a second, I think he's the fourth person to win multiple GT Cups. Um, just kind of a kind of a cool story, and and kind of nice the way that event has shown some resilience uh, in the face of the pandemic. And fingers crossed they can actually have a proper Macau Grand Prix next year again with a full field of international GT cars, and you know get F3 cars back because it's um, I've been lucky enough to cover it a few times, and it's a whole bunch of fun, and I would love to be there again. Next year, well, I think that'll do us for uh, for this week, Stefan. Thanks for joining me again. I reckon the next time we're going to chat is when we'll be previewing the big one, the Bathurst One Thousand. So um, we'll hook up and do that in the next week or so. Um, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the pod, particularly if you've got nice things to say. And um, we'll be back next week. Ciao. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.